On Radio Survivor this week, Christopher Terry sounds the alarm on how the FCC is handling media ownership rules. I feel like a lone voice in the wind sometimes still talking about this stuff, but it is so critically important. You know, the FCC's jurisdiction is to manage these things. It's what the agency was created to do, and they don't want anything to do with it as far as I can tell, and I don't know what the consequences for that are. If Congress doesn't do something here, I I mean, I think our media system is in for another radical shakeup over the next five years. And on College Radio Watch, Paul and Jennifer speculate on the murky slowdown of CMJ, an institution in the college and community radio music scene. People have had a hard time reaching anybody at CMJ, and we haven't had public updates about this, you know, what's going on with the marathon this year. And in fact, I was really surprised to see the response from the CEO of CMJ. All that straight ahead. Stay tuned. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Spinell. I'm one of your hosts and producers. Eric Klein here, other host and producer. Hello, everybody. And we've got a lot in this show. This show, there's a, there's a lot in this show. So uh, first up, we'll be talking with Professor Christopher Terry. He's at the School of Law at the University of Minnesota. And we've been talking with him many times over the past year. FCC watcher. He's an FCC watcher, uh, an expert policy analyst who's been watching and observing the progress of media ownership rules as they are being reviewed by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. So the FCC has had to deal with the Third Circuit Court of Appeals over its media ownership rules, the rules that say how many radio stations, TV stations that a single company in the U.S. can own or operate at at a uh, local level. And these rules have been challenged by the Prometheus Radio Project, which is sort of the lead plaintiff for uh, for what are uh, sort of public interest groups. And they contend that the rules that exist are not well-founded in evidence <laughs> and cause harm, cause harm specifically to minority voices and to, and, and to the voices of women, to, that they are not well-represented in U.S. media because of the effect of these ownership rules. Giant corporations owning more and more radio stations is bad for diversity. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and so this has been ongoing – being challenged in the court for more than a decade since since I was a baby, <laughs> and the Third Circuit keeps sending it back to the FCC, saying, "No, you 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 need to actually justify these rules. You need to actually provide evidence. You can't you you can't just keep telling us these these are the rules. The rules is rules. You need to do this. <laughs> this is this is my you know very uh, shorthand way of putting this forward. Uh, Christopher Terry will will fill in the details yeah. many more. So I, I wanna... we've been following this because of the fact that that the FCC has has visited the, the court it, as recently as April uh, of this year, 2016, and and Chris was on to talk about so... that. And recently, the FCC came out with its response. It's rules, it's report in order uh, that that responds to the court's challenge, to the court's remands, to the court's order to the FCC to do something about it. So he's going to tell us more about that. One of the challenges that we're having here on this podcast, on our radio show, is that there seems to be a certain amount of um, basically understood, generally agreed upon 
information that we all already know. You don't have to start talking about the Olympics and explain to people what track and field is. But with the Federal Communications Commission, it seems like we're like the only nerds on earth who are talking about it. And, week well, in, and week talking out. Or, or talking about this aspect of it. So every time we talk about it, we have to sort of like I feel like I have to remind people like the FCC is a is a body that is. That well, I don't think we have to remind them that. But I mean, you know, we're talking with folks who are savvy about radio. We don't have to talk about yeah. that. Everyone sort of understands that the FCC is in charge as a regulator, but often the dynamics. You just of said it, everyone understands. And I would disagree. Well, I, think. I mean, I think that – no, I think it's a pretty broadly understood concept. I think yeah. to, when we're talking about our audience, when yes, we're talking about yes, the folks definitely. listening here, most people understand. And even there's a broader understanding that people have of the of the FCC as a regulator. They get it. They get – it regulates radio, regulates television. I think the, in the common pr- – Commonly understood conception, people more often think of them as a content regulator. Right. Like they worry that – Janet Jackson's boob. Right. Is it FCC – right. Can can we say the F word? Uh, Can we show boobs on television? They think of the FCC being involved in regulation most commonly in that form. And then they also sort of understand that, yeah, that sort of has some say over like cell phones and has say over my telephone and and whether or not someone can can change my telephone service without my knowledge. People are aware of, of the sorts of elements, but yeah. the, the, sort of the, the these more esoteric things, especially I think media ownership, which was less esoteric going back a decade ago, when it was much more in the public mind. There are many more people. There are more and more public hearings. There's much more sort of public activism around it because the effects of the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which got rid of the national radio cap, which greatly raised the yeah. number of stations that someone could own in a local market. People were feeling the effects. We're feeling the effects then. It was obvious. It was clear. They were feeling it. They could see it. They could hear it. And people were motivated. We're now on to 20 years, years yeah. after that piece of legislation. And it's sort of like, you know, sort of like the lizard in the hot pan. The water keeps getting hotter and hotter, but we've gotten used to the fact that uh, much of commercial radio is homogenized and not local. And, and we have a whole generation of, of people, of Americans, yeah. who've grown up with that circumstance. They, they, I, they, even if they don't like it, they don't really expect it to be different. I see myself, I hear myself, I should say, grab Grabbing millennials, uh, nice young people who have better things to worry about and trying to explain to them who Michael Powell was, why they should know this man's name. Former FCC commissioner in the Bush era, uh, an architect of of many of these terrible rules. And and weirdly the son of Colin Powell, the secretary of state and former – oh, gosh. Former architect of the Iraq war. Yeah, so it's just so (laughs) – so do you know and and his name uh his name is dropped Michael Powell's name is dropped yet again in today's podcast interview with Dr. So Terry. so that's just we want to just sort of provide that so so that you have some context going in for for this conversation which is coming up uh Christopher also wrote a great blog post to try and and summarize these things as well which is currently at our website at radiosurvivor.com and you can find links in our show notes radiosurvivor.com/podcast um but so that's definitely you know an ongoing story that we've been following that we've been trying to provide longitudinal coverage of and treat it not just like this thing that happens yeah, but- out of nowhere, but that it, it is a is a progression and it has many um, milestones as, as it. It's as also it something I want to toot. I want to toot Radio Survivor's horn for following this story because it does appear to be slipping through the cracks 
for other media It's not sexy anymore, right? And as we talk, as we'll talk more about with, with Chris, uh, who, who laments that he feels often like the, the one person crowing about it. So, yeah. so that's going to be coming up in just a moment or two. Uh, so do stay around for that. And we'll also be talking with Jennifer Waits, who will bring us College Radio Watch. And she's got two really meaty stories this week, too. Uh, the Princeton Review. Every year comes out with its list of like top colleges and universities. But within that, it always has a list of top college radio stations. Right. Uh, and Jennifer very, uh, very well, very ably deconstructs it for us so you can understand what it means, if anything. Because she's if, – if, if someone asked Jennifer Waits, which they should, how she would – uh, what criteria she would use to judge a radio station at a college? Um, she would not necessarily use the same criteria. Exactly, as the prince. She she might say they're using no criteria. I'm just guessing. Yes. I haven't heard it yet. So uh, <laughs> we'll be hearing from her, and as well, uh, she has a story about CMJ, mm. which is uh, which we've talked about here on the podcast. We went to an event sponsored by CMJ last fall where they brought together college radio stations around the Pacific Northwest to have a day of of discussion uh about the issues facing uh college radio as well as about the sort of intersection between independent music and college radio as well as to hear some great bands. They're most well known because they put out charts. They put out yeah they publish charts. They 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 aggregate the uh like the Billboard pop charts but this is for Community and college radio. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and they also put on uh, an annual kind of conference and concert event called the Music Marathon in New York City, uh, which where which is multi-venue. It's sort of like South by Southwest, like predates yeah. South by Southwest by quite a few years, um, which is a premier event really for a lot of independent musicians, so, uh, independent labels, so and college big, radio station They've people. been a big player in the community and college radio world and the, the music industry that that loves the community and college radio world for more than a generation. Yeah, for for yeah, exactly. 35 years in fact, going on 36. And what's happening now? Uh well, uh things have been a little quiet, been a little too quiet <laughs> on the uh on the CMJ front, I think we will say. Sad. So Jennifer has the details uh and uh, you definitely want to uh, keep listening for that then we'll hear from Jennifer after we hear from Christopher Terry so as i say it's a jam packed show there's a lot going on this week the as we head forward into september into the fall kids are going back to school uh legislators i guess are coming back to do their thing and uh we're just there, there's a never ending stream of of great things about radio for us to cover here at radio survivor so uh our job security is strong such as it is such as such as it is uh so i'll take this moment to say hey you know what i mean we think we're sharing a lot of facts and a lot of stories and digging in so you know jennifer dug in a bunch into the cmj story went beyond just sort of the reporting that that's been heard so far um or read so far on the internet uh so you know if you think someone would benefit from this we'd love you to tell someone share it with a friend Share with a colleague, uh, tweet it out, put it in Facebook, put it out on, 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 on social media. We really would appreciate to grow the audience. Um, we think that we talk about things that are of interest, you know, obviously to people who care deeply about radio, but people who care deeply about communications democracy, people who care deeply about things like diversity in media, uh, who care deeply about media that serves communities 
right? So, I mean, yes, radio is sort of our, our, uh, the point that we really rest upon, but, but it's, it is bigger than that. And we'd love for you to share this with somebody. Um, another way you can help out, of course, is by subscribing, uh, to the show, whether you use iTunes, whether you use something like Overcast, Pocket Cast, or, or Stitcher, uh, go ahead and subscribe to the show so you always get it delivered, so you never miss it. The Google Podcast app. The Google Play Podcast, exactly. And I just spent uh, last week making sure that we're listed all those places Thank and you, that you can find all of that on our website, RadioSurvivor.com. If you're looking for the link to our show in all of those places, it's there, right on the on the front page on the right-hand side. Go to RadioSurvivor.com. Every major sort of podcast platform we're trying to be there uh subscribe there and if they have a rating mechanism which i think google play does stitcher definitely does itunes definitely does hey rate us that'll help other people find it spread the word of great radio and and let's let's bring that message that media should serve communities to a broader number of people yeah. that if, you're is our trouble, message. if you're having trouble thinking of what to say about our podcast just tell us what the sound of strong communities means to you because um that's that's what we're trying to define every every uh, every week on the show absolutely so coming up next we'll talk with professor christopher terry professor christopher terry joins us on the line from the university of minnesota in minneapolis st paul uh welcome chris thanks for joining us this week i'm glad to be back guys well, are you? <laughs> I'm going to seed you because we're here to talk about the Federal Communications Commission's recent report in order on media ownership rules. And this is something sort of much anticipated. You've been on this show a few times now to talk about this or mostly to talk about how the FCC has not acted on it for a long time long time. And I don't think we want to get into the history so much as to say uh, this has been about 13 years in the making. It's a very slow, glacially slow policy story. Yes. And and so what we want to know is, uh, are there any changes and are they any good? Chris, what, what's going on? Um. Okay. So let's back up just a little bit. It's actually longer than 13 years in the making. <laughs> Um, and yes, there is one change. It's not a significant change, but there is a minor change to the newspaper broadcast cross ownership rule that was passed in 1975. Um, the commission is going to look at potential mergers between newspaper and broadcast companies in the top 20 markets and potentially grant them assuming that they can justify the situation primarily to save any of the newspapers that might go under if they're not allowed to merge with broadcasters. But that is the good news of the second report in order. Oh, it's the good news. Okay. That's the, that's, that's <laughs> the good news of the second report. In order. Why, why is okay. it before we go on? Can I ask why, why that's good news? Well, it's a, it's something that they wrestled with for a long time. And you're talking about a rule that, you know, is literally, 40 years old at this point and just isn't as valid as some of the others. Um, I like the approach that the commission is going to take that. They're not just going to have a blanket rule. They're going to look at these cases individually and adjudicate them individually. And, you know, frankly, media ownership has needed a little bit more of that for a long time. So it, they do deserve the smallest amount of praise on that point. Okay. But it's going to get ugly after that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's move on to the ugly. Okay. 
So what we're really talking about here is the second report in order. And it's you'll have to give me a moment here as I sum this all up. Second report in order is going to conclude a quadriennial review launched in 2010. An ongoing quadriennial review, which was an extension of the 2010 review, launched in 2014. It is also going to deal with the remand of the FCC's minority ownership policy from 2008 and the joint service agreement policy dealing with uh, television stations that are working together. So it's actually four things that they're sort of just piling into one thing and calling done. They're tying up a whole uh, generation of loose ends. With a bow. A bow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, I have, on a personal level, I have been waiting for this decision since 2010. My dissertation was about the evidence that was used uh, between 96 and 2005. And I've literally been kind of waiting for this to come out. We've talked about that on the other times I've been on that this has just been a lingering process. And it's, it bears mention before we get into the brass tacks of it, that the only reason we have this order is that in April, when the FCC got dragged into court, the court pretty much told them, it is now time for you to deliver. And if you don't, it's going to go really bad for you. So the only reason we even have this document and this order is that the FCC literally ran out of time to delay on it. Unfortunately for us, it appears that they may have found a loophole in the no-delay plan (laughs) in that they are essentially declaring media ownership to be a success, media ownership policy to be a success, and they're going to continue on as things are extra hunky-dory on essentially all points. That, of course, is a significant problem because the Third Circuit Court of Appeals who already warned the FCC if they didn't put up or shut up earlier this year, has now had an FCC that has essentially given the Third Circuit the middle finger. And the FCC has gone so far as not only to essentially give the Third Circuit the middle finger, but to reinstitute policies the Third Circuit expressly declared to be arbitrary and capricious and threw out in the last three Prometheus decisions. So it's a fantastic order. In terms of radio, sort of our direct, uh, our direct link here, they believe, the commission is now arguing, that the local radio ownership rule is consistent with promoting minority and female ownership of broadcast television stations. Now, you didn't hear me wrong. The FCC believes that the local ownership rule for radio actually promotes minority and female ownership, a problem that the FCC's wrestled with for a long time, of broadcast television. Now, gents, I have been involved with FCC regulation for a very long time. I can't try that one on. I, I can't figure <laughs> that one out. You want to you want to try me out? Maybe, maybe we can work so, this one okay, out together. Uh, the local, the, what is the local radio station rule? Ownership. It's the eight station rule that in the, in the largest markets, a single owner can own up to eight radio stations. Uh, with the AMFM caps on each band. The FCC is literally arguing that that rule makes broadcast television in the United States more diverse. So broadcast radio. And so, so right. And, and by saying that it works, 
it is also saying, therefore, I mean, it sounds like they're saying then there is enough minority and women ownership. Like there's something we need to do to fix it. So, because it's all okay. Is that, I mean, that's what I would take from it. Yeah. Except they're saying that that's true for television because okay. of radio. It's on, true for television on, because yeah, of the radio. radio. Rule makes the television rule better. Does that make sense to you? Because that doesn't make sense to me. So I, I got to jump right to the question then. How, why does this not make sense? Why are they doing this? They want to lose. There's okay. no other explanation. <laughs> so this is a Trumpian campaign. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. You know, people say this about the Trump campaign, and we're, you know, by the time you listen to this in uh, 2017, we might find out that that his wanting to lose. Why do you think they want to lose so bad? I think that they cannot legitimately. I don't think. I know they can't legitimately justify what they have done to this point. So the between stuff, 90, the stuff between that, 96 and 2005, they didn't have any evidence to support what they've done. It's not any different here 11 years later. And so they need the court to just literally slap them down, tear it all apart, and let them start over again. And that's the only way they can dig out huh. from this hole that they have dug themselves in this 20 years. Like you've, because, you've heard me call it yeah. legacy of failure. Because, we are at the point of failure. Because they don't have a mandate to start over unless they're forced to? The court is kind of the Third Circuit doesn't like the FCC. That's no secret. Um, having the Third Circuit maintain the jurisdiction over these cases since the original Prometheus case in 2004 has been trouble for the FCC. Part of the reason we're talking about this now and not last year was that the FCC did everything it could to take this case and move it back over to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, the D.C. Circuit doesn't like the FCC any better than the Third Circuit. But the FCC knew what would happen if they had to go back to the Third Circuit. And they fought tooth, nail, and claw. And it wasn't until the Third Circuit literally dragged them kicking and screaming back into court that we got to this point. But let's move on, shall we? (laughs) Let let us set aside the television-radio ownership uh, combination, which makes absolutely no logical sense and cannot be justified by any piece of evidence that the FCC has that I'm aware of. And I know about every piece that they have. Let us talk just about the local radio ownership rule. The local radio ownership rule is the eight-station rule that created the radio environment we have now. Now, the three of us are all familiar with the radio environment that existed before yeah, we, the eight-station rule. It's what, it's what we talked about on the first, the first podcast that we interviewed each other, or spoke to one another, I should say. So, on that rule... It was part of the larger media ownership rule. Now, this is going to get a little wonky for a minute, but bear with me. The rule was justified on the idea that it would create three things simultaneously. Competition in the form of economic competition, localism, and viewpoint diversity, which is known in the FCC as the CLD combo. Now, the FCC has relied on the idea that these three things work together and are created by the local ownership rules, both television and radio, for a very long time, 20 years, as a matter of fact. They are now admitting that only competition is created by this and that localism and viewpoint diversity are sort of byproducts of that equation and that when it happens, it's good, but it's really just about competition. Which is a really interesting point of view, because let's assume for a second that they haven't justified everything that they did 
uh, irrationally for the last 20 years on this competition localism diversity policy. Let's just work on that competition, the economic competition model. I noticed this week that the smoldering husk that was once Clear Channel is sinking deeper and deeper into the abyss uh, it itself created. Now, Clear Channel is the direct descendant of this rule. Clear Channel would never have existed in the form that it did without the local ownership rule. Now, we know there's no localism. I've proven that with multiple studies that I've done. We know there's no diversity because it's not logical to imagine that there would be. When one company owns more uh, of the radio stations. Right. It's the opposite of diversity. Well, well, let's take the FCC at face value and say that the local ownership rule creates competition. That would mean that there would be economic success for the companies that the rule created. But look at the major radio companies that were created in the wake of the 1996 Telecommunications Act, and they're all a mess. So by any justifiable metric, even ones that are preposterous like the FCC is attempting to apply here in the second reporting order, you don't have a metric that shows that this has worked. We're 20 years in. It has been a colossal failure. It is time for the FCC to admit they were wrong. But they can't do that. And that is why I honestly believe that this order was written in the way that it was to antagonize the Third Circuit to tear it all down. Now, when we talked a few months ago, I pointed out that the Third Circuit said they didn't want to do that, but that they believed that they might have to at this point. And I believe that we are honestly on the precipice of watching the Third Circuit destroy media ownership as a, a FCC policy entirely. And I have no idea what the potential consequences for that are, but I can assure you they will not be good. Well, and the thing I want to point out, uh, just so you know, people here are talking about this local ownership rule that puts a cap of eight stations that one uh, company can own in any given market. What, what we have to make sure people understand is that previously that cap was lower. <laughs> so, so substantially uh, lower. Yes. Yes, and and that in in smaller markets the cap is lower based upon the size of the market. But in your largest markets, places like Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, etc. That's that's their cap. So I, I just want to make sure that people don't aren't are, don't get lost in that in that particular point. And so with the possibility of the Third Circuit tearing the entire house down, this entire house of cards upon which uh, the FCC's current media ownership regulations are built, would that mean that they would be attacking that that the court would attack the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which set the stage, or would it just be everything that the FCC has had to build based upon the requirements of that piece of legislation? Well, it's neither one of those things. Okay. Unfortunately, either one of those things would actually be more positive than what is likely to happen mm. because of Section 202H, which we've talked about before, but just to review. Section 202H is a very small paragraph embedded within the Telecommunications Act that is deregulatory in nature. It essentially means that the FCC has to justify keeping an existing rule as if it were creating a new rule. So when an agency creates a new rule, it has to come up with evidence to support why it made that decision. Unique to administrative law, as far as I can tell, is Section 202H also requires the agency to defend existing rules as if they were brand new. Why does that matter? Well, in short terms, it, the FCC can't do that with a rule, say a media ownership rule, for example. The rule goes away. 
which means that the limits associated with that rule also go away. And it's the only logical outcome now that the court will essentially offer the FCC the opportunity to remove any of the numerical limits that still exist. Huh. So, yeah, okay, that's... Because they, that's what the law says they are have to do. It's what the law has said for 20 years, is that if the FCC cannot defend an existing rule with evidence, evidence that the FCC has been very, very reluctant to go after, the rule goes away. That's, that's how the law works. So the, the, oh, so okay. Am I wrong here? The rule that we're talking about was allowed for, um, more, uh, more radio stations that were once, uh, separate cultural entities, separate businesses to be owned by uh, a smaller and smaller number of media conglomerates, the homogenization of, of American radio. That that's the process that happened, and the rules were there to facilitate that. But now the rules could be thrown out to allow the greater homogenization, further media consolidation, as opposed. Like it's so funny that you why <laughs> you take the rule away, and instead of uh, moving backwards, you just finish the destruction of. Well, so so here's a question then. Does the court have other options, right? So could the court look at this and say, well, you know, go back to the drawing board. We're wiping the slate clean, but we're going to stay, right? That that right now we're going to – everything is going to hold, but you have to come back with something entirely new. Is that a possibility? Could the court do that? Yeah, but I think the Third Circuit will be reluctant to deal with the FCC in that way. They've given them – 16 years to sort this out and you know they've been dragged into court three times it's there's no way so why would wait wait, hold on one second let's talk about this because i don't want to leave this hanging yeah all right so the eight station limit created the the local radio ownership rule eight station limit created the modern radio environment that we have but you seem you seem not to be able to grasp why it matters that that rule might go away that rule still limited it to eight stations. Right. No, I get that. If, if that rule goes away, there won't be any limit on the number of stations a single. Right. No, no. I, I guess it's just that. hard to imagine it getting worse. Yeah. So, but the question but I that's have, what you're talking about, right. right? So the question I have then is, if the FCC has been unable to justify the rules that were written, and this is, and and, and I think it's important to point out that we we're talking about a current democratically run, run by the Democratic Party FCC, dealing with rules that are written under a Republican administration. Isn't that correct? Well, they're all rules written from the 1996 Telecommunications Act, so Bill Clinton signed it. Okay, but the but the but the FC but the rules that the FCC has had to to create. So I guess here's where I'm getting a little lost. Been bipartisan though. Really. Yeah, yeah, but here's here's where I, maybe I'm getting a little lost. So the the rules that are in the Telecommunications Act are themselves also subject to being defended or or uh, justified by the FCC on this quadrennial cycle. Is this correct? Yes. Okay. That that was how Section two hundred two. Okay. So I, I, that's why I want to make sure I understood it. So it's not merely any additional policy that the FCC would come up with, but it is also the the congressionally mandated policies in the Communications Act itself. The rule, the Telecommunications Act ordered the FCC to implement these rules. Right. And then ordered the tele, the FCC 
to defend them on a periodic basis. Originally a biennial cycle, later the quadrennial cycle. So the so the FCC is saying we basically we can't justify these rules. <laughs> basically, they're they're if if I if we're going to be at all charitable, they're they're sitting there saying, "Well, it's a rock and hard place. We can't actually find any means to justify them." Uh, and there and there rules that that the FCC itself, at least this FCC, did not write. You know, it may have been written in in a bipartisan context in 1996, but there's no one on the current FCC who who was involved in the authoring of them in any way. No. Um, The problem, of course, though, is that what you have is a perfect storm here. You suggested that they were unable to come up with evidence to support these policies. I would suggest that the more likely explanation is that they are unwilling to try. And it's because they know the policies aren't having the effect that they're intended to do. I mean, they've been making this, they've, they've left us with this for 20 years, and it's been a colossal failure since the beginning. All empirical evidence suggests that it is. And it's, I mean, it's, it's almost like global warming in a way. It's like I'm the one guy who still thinks that there's a way to salvage this, but everybody else is just like, yeah, let's just let it flush down a toilet at this point. And I... I mean, there's no evidence. There is not. I mean, take the minority ownership aspect of it. So we've talked about the local radio. Let's talk about the other part of this that really matters, and that's the minority ownership policy. Under FCC guidelines, the women and minorities, ethnic racial minorities, count as a special class. And the FCC was ordered quite some time ago now to come up with a plan to ensure that those people, those groups, had enough access to ownership so that their viewpoints were making it into the public sphere. And this has been very, very hard for the commission to come up with an answer on how to solve this problem. In fact, in 2011, in the Prometheus case, uh, second Prometheus case, the court essentially assaulted the FCC on this point that they told them to stop whining about it. Well, here's how they solved it this time. They believe that women-owned stations and minority-owned stations, although there's evidence that both of those groups create content, that diverse content, that targets other groups, essentially women and minorities, they don't meaningfully contribute to viewpoint diversity in any measurable way that can be contributed to the policy. When did they say this? In the, in the order. In the, in the new order. In the new order, yeah. So they so wash they their are hands. They are literally arguing that having a woman owner programs a station with content that targets women does not actually make diversity. That's their, that is their new argument, which undermines the argument that they have made essentially every day since 1996. And to top it off, the real middle finger that the FCC sends to the F, to the third circuit court of appeals is something I talked about in the blog post. They are reinstituting the eligible entity policy. Now I, I, pretty good at the law. I mean, I pretty, I know how to read the law pretty well. I read the third circuit court of appeals decision in 2011, directly ordering the FCC to do away with this policy and come up with another one. The FCC is going to reinstitute the policy and essentially say, well, we don't believe that we were actually ordered to do this. And what is the eligible entity policy? The eligible entity policy was their attempt to get around having a policy for actual women and minorities. They used a small business administration guideline 
to create an environment where smaller owners might have an opportunity to get distressed stations. So back in the day when Clear Channel was starting to look like they might start selling off some of their less profitable properties, the FCC was going to give people an advantage, tax advantage, to start up those stations again as a smaller business. The argument was then it's content neutral. It doesn't involve Adirond and sort of the equal opportunity things that get a little dicey. You know, that it was logical that we would see small businesses and then small businesses would then also include businesses by women and minorities and they would end up with more stations. Of course, that's not what happened. And there's zero evidence that it actually works that way. And importantly, the Third Circuit told them it doesn't work that way. It doesn't actually solve the problem that you're trying to solve. And we order you to come up with a new plan. And whining about it isn't good enough anymore. Do something about this. And the FCC's answer to that in the second report in order, which came out last week, was essentially to say, we don't actually believe we were ordered to do that. I included the language in the uh, in the blog post there. Right. So, can check. so what is the FCC's interest here? What does What do you imagine the FCC wishes to accomplish? What is I its think- interest? I think that they have, they feel like this is old policy. It's a burden on them. They have no way to dig out of the hole they've dug for themselves for 20 years. So they're hoping the Third Circuit Court of Appeals will just make it all go away and they can just wash their hands of it and focus on selling off our spectrum to the highest bidder. That's legitimately what I believe at this point. You think they want to be out of the business of regulating radio or television ownership? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see any other possible explanation at this point. I mean, I get that it's hard for them. I mean, they are in a, between a rock and a hard place. They dug a bad policy. Congress mandated this policy went into place. They implemented it without thinking it through. And they've created an environment now that's really hard to dig out of. So they just want this to go away. It's an incredible burden on their resources so, to try and figure this out. And, they, you know, they're going to keep getting dragged into court. Why not just have it all go away and let it, the marketplace sort itself out? That's what competition regulation is designed to do in the first place. Well, here we are at that point. So you're describing a pretty um, a pretty dismal outcome for media diversity. Uh, is it is the only good scenario that uh, <laughs> even this one's difficult to believe in that that Congress would come along and uh, create good policy instead of poor policy, and then and then we would have. Uh, a decent media landscape again? Well, you have a lot more faith in Congress than I do. I I don't. I can say that. But I would think that you are facing a situation if the Third Circuit goes nuclear here, which I don't think is an unreasonable assumption. Yeah. You probably have the case go to the Supreme Court, which will drag out the status quo for a few years. Um, And then at some point, the realization that the court is going to have to deal with this one way or the other or Congress is going to will you know sort of jumpstart people in action. There's a big there's a big movement in Congress to rewrite the Communications Act. Mm-hmm. This might be the you know sort of the battery jumpstart on that plan. What what does that movement look like, and who's who's driving it? Because because to me, like in the background of my mind right now, the thing I wanted to bring up uh, is it just seems like um, that what you're describing is so important to to what the radio sounds like in the United States, that it's kind of remarkable that nobody knows that this is happening. You know, this is not I, on CNN. This is not on NPR ever, as far as I know. It's 
it's kind of wonky. It's you not. Know? A, it's, it's not even in the New York Times. The I, last time I checked, I mean, it, there hasn't been a story about the order that I've seen anywhere. And I mean, that you guys have heard me say it before. I feel like a lone voice in the wind sometimes, still talking about this stuff. But it is so critically, critically important. You know, the FCC's jurisdiction is to manage these things. It's what it, the agency was created to do, and. They don't want anything to do with it, as far as I can tell, and I don't know what the consequences for that are. If Congress doesn't do something here, I i mean, I think our media system is in for another radical shakeup over the next five years. Well, uh, how do we come back from there? I don't know. <laughs> you can have me on to complain again sometime, I'm sure. <laughs> well, what, what's happening next then? I mean, th- this is a big day, and uh, but what's... What's the next signpost to look out for? Well, the case will ultimately end up back in the Third Circuit. One of the things that's unique about this situation is you have two sides who disagree on the solution, but you have two sides who agree on the problem. So you have the NAB and the broadcasters who want to see a lot of these rules go away to allow for additional consolidation. And then you have the citizen petitioners led by the Prometheus Radio Group who also think the rules are bad but want to see more stringent rules. So one way or the other, one of those one of those groups is going to be mad. The Prometheus group can be mad that nothing got changed here, and the you know the NEB group can be mad that they don't think that the FCC is making any real moves here. I mean, the NEB is really looking forward to another round of consolidation. Now, that's not a you know, they're not quiet about that. They actually argue for it in the case, and so one or the other side will push this back into court. And I don't see how it doesn't end up at the Supreme Court at some level. So, you know, timeline that you're looking at, there's probably a five-year window. But after that, depending on how things shake out, it's very likely that, um, you know, we'll see a new new, new round of consolidation. And I will there, see how it doesn't happen. Will there even be an iHeartRadio left <laughs> in five years? Will there, well, I mean, will there even be a cumulus media left in the form that we know? Will they even have the kind of capital necessary to operate that, that number of radio stations by that point? Well, there's a lot of people who believe one of the things about this that um, maybe we should just let it die is that people believe that broadcasting is sort of going the way of the newspaper. I'm skeptical that that's the case, but there's an argument to be made for that, right? That um, it's not a good argument, mind you, but there's an argument to say, you know, radio is a technology that's almost 100 years old now. Maybe we should, you know, repurpose the spectrum for things that matter. And, and my argument, just so you understand, I was not about radio and not about uh, its viability as, as a medium. It, it was It's about the fact that those two big companies, which engage in the greatest degree of station eating and consolidation did did so through leverage through digging themselves into debt at a an alarming and really nonsensical rate which resulted in their current circumstances which has nothing to do with really the medium of radio as a viable as a viable uh, medium as a viable commercial medium so much as to do with really bad business practices well, I agree with that. Um, the problem is, is that last time it was a buyer's market. This time, it's likely to be a seller's market. Yeah. yeah so, what I'm having trouble imagining what would come next. What could be bigger than Clear Channel or Cumulus? Well, it, I think it would not necessarily be nationally big, but could be big by market by market. Yeah. So, in a way, and you think that, that? Yeah. 
yeah, that's the the local thing. You want to know how big it can get? Char- Charter Time Warner. You know, right. just a few months ago, we were talking about potentially, you know, um, Comcast Time Warner. Right. The Comcast you know? of, of radio. So, right. you know, I mean, here on one radio network, one radio owner all. per city or, you know, two. Two, as opposed yeah. to where you currently pro- usually in most cities have in midsize to big cities so you have three or four. If or you five. thought radio was boring now, right? There's that you didn't you haven't even seen the floor yet. There's a basement and we're about to fall through it to an yeah. even oh. more dull form of radio. Yeah, and with less humans. a less useful form of radio. Look, I, I you guys know me. I'm a I'm a dedicated radiophile, and I think that radio is really important as a medium because it has the ability to attract very small audiences and be profitable at the same time. Hmm. So it provides an opportunity for less represented groups to have a media outlet that, you know, they can't do with television because there's not enough spectrum. And, you know, the internet, some of those underrepresented groups don't have access to the internet the same way that, you know, people in major cities do. And it's, it will be a travesty, historical travesty, if they allow the medium to die just because they were unwilling to make a really simple distinction. Look, we tried this policy. It didn't work. All the evidence suggests we need to repeal these things and go back to the drawing board and break up some of these companies, maybe try a regional model instead of a, this national model that we did and try again. And, but they, their agency is absolutely unwilling to do that and has been unwilling to do that. And, has had all the evidence it needed to do that since 2003. And, you know, this is where we find ourselves. I mean, I would like to think that the Third Circuit will show restraint, but I've listened to that oral argument several times, and I've followed this case very closely for years. I know what happened back in April, and I know how the Third Circuit feels about this. And they might just want it to go away themselves. (laughs) Well... On that note, <laughs> I think we'll say thank you, Chris. Always nice to talk to you guys. <laughs> yeah, geez. We'll to find some new topics to talk about for to to lighten the mood. But I mean, and that's not I I I and I'm not making fun. I'm not making light at all. We're uh, we're we're simply not happy to hear what you're reporting. But we will not kill the messenger. In fact, we'll invite you on again. <laughs> yeah, the next time we have you on, we'll have to. You'll have to maybe just play utopian dreamer, right? Like, what well, what is the right way to run a national? Uh, let, let me just say radio. one thing. It's it's important for people to know we chose the situation that we have, right? It's not. It didn't get handed down from above. We chose this, right? This is these are policy can, decisions made by politicians, right? We could choose different if we wanted to. So that's the one shred of idealism I'm mm-hmm. able to hold on to sometimes with this. But I appreciate you guys having me on. I hope people have a chance to read the blog post. And if they want more information, they can certainly reach out to me. I included a video where I talk extensively about the evidence issue. So that's in that's embedded in the post there as well. So That's great. Well, so you can find all of that at RaiderSurvivor.com slash podcast. We'll note it in the show notes. Uh, so that you can uh, go back and follow up and learn more. And we will definitely have Christopher on again as we uh, learn more about how the set of media ownership rules uh, end up back in court and what happens from there. Uh, Thanks again, Chris, and have a great weekend. uh, You too. See you guys. Bye-bye. 
Up next on Radio Survivor, College Radio Watch with Jennifer Waits. Well, school's back in session, isn't it, Jennifer? It definitely is back in session. <laughs> and with that, that means, uh, of course, students are back at their high schools and colleges and universities in many places. It means that uh, stations are returning kind of to their regularly scheduled programming. And uh, we're, we've got more news this week in the world of, of college radio. Some, some hot news, I would say, even uh, as uh, the students return to campus. And uh, the first thing is we have the publication of the annual Princeton Review. And so why is this important to college radio? It's always a rite of passage every August when Princeton Review publishes its college rankings. It's of interest to college radio because within their tome, they always have a list of the best college radio stations. And this, the tome I'm speaking of is The Best 381 Colleges 2017 Edition, which just came out. And within that, a list of 20 of the best college radio stations. That's how it's touted. And if you're a longtime Radio Survivor reader, even spinning indie reader <laughs> and Radio Survivor podcast listener, you'll know that I've been talking about these rankings for a really long time. And the reason I've been talking about them is because the list is described as the best college radio stations, but it's actually based on student surveys in which students are asked about the popularity of their college radio station. So it's really a list of popular radio stations based on student surveys. So you can take that as you will, but Regardless, college radio stations will be promoting these results, saying, we have the best college radio station in the country, when actually their school is perceived to have a popular radio station or two or three based on these surveys. So it's, it's, it's kind of an example of just, I like people to dig beneath the surface when they see rankings or ratings or things like best college radio station promoted somewhere i think it's always good to know exactly what is behind that that right. number it's not as if that either there was like a grammys or an oscars a board of college radio experts who are tapped to uh to vote or there was some set of like objective criteria right where oh, right. Yeah. where 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 stations were rated based upon I don't know, involvement or original programming or something in the same way that, you know, colleges and universities in this guide are ostensibly rated based upon these sorts of objective factors, right? Things like graduation rates and faculty to student ratio, things that you can count and, and, and discover. Uh, none of that goes into these uh, rankings of college radio stations by the Princeton Review. Yeah. So it, it's just good to know that. And in fact, Nobody is asked about a specific college radio station in the survey. So the list is really a list of schools. It's a list of 20 schools that are somehow perceived to have popular radio stations. And every year I tease that out and I actually write a list um, where I figure out the names of the radio stations on these campuses. Mm. Uh, so it's the Princeton Review does not cite specific radio stations. But we, uh, we interpret and intuit that students at those stations are referring to a specific station. Right. And how much change-up is there from year to year since, you know, stations don't tend to come and go 
too frequently. Uh, you know, is it is it kind of like just the same twenty stations every year, or does it change up? It's. I mean, it's it's often a pretty consistent list. Um, this year, the numbers one through eleven were all on the list last year, and then twelve through twenty. Um, some of those I've seen in years past. Some of them were, I think, brand new to me. I haven't gone back and dissected every list, but um, there's some that look unfamiliar, like Truman State University in Missouri. Hmm. That is number 18 this year as far as popularity of college radio on campus. Yeah, that's the one that jumps out as a station that was new to me, but many of the others are familiar looking. Number one is Ithaca College in New York, which has at least two radio stations, an FM station and an online student station. So a little bit of change up, and it did bring some new stations onto your uh, radar there. Is there anything else to stand out about this list this year, or is it you know, just kind of more of the same? You know, as a Californian, I think I'm always struck that California tends to not be well represented. I don't really know why, but the East Coast has the most numbers of the most number of stations on the list. There are 13 out of the 20 stations that are from the East Coast, six from New York. Um, so New York is well represented, and only I wonder three... are they smaller schools? Some of them are because if um, if we're talking about percentage of students on campus who might know about the station. It, mm-hmm. it just might be easier for a station to be well-known on a smaller campus than on a campus of a school, you know, the size of uh, UC Berkeley, you know, or, yeah. or University of Washington. That thought definitely crossed my mind as I was reading through the list because there are a number of small schools on here, you know, schools that have 5,000 students or less, um, like Carleton College is a small college, Reed College. Those are just two examples. So... So, yeah, I mean, the mojo in uh, in how this list is determined is a bit mysterious. Um, so I'm not sure how all of these surveys are weighted, but you may very well be correct that there might be an advantage for schools that are smaller. Well, and so people who are interested in knowing not just the schools, but the particular stations can go to radiosurvivor.com and, and look at your update uh, where you'll break down uh, or at least make your best educated guess at what the stations are in addition to just the schools, correct? Yes, I I will give you that additional information. Great. And another big story, and this is a story that, that – affects college radio, but not not just college radio. It's really affecting, I think, community radio as well as the music industry. And it has to do with, well, a big event uh, that happens every fall and a publication that uh, serves college radio and more. Uh, what What's going on? Yeah, well, so you might recall back in June, I wrote about a bit of a slowdown that I was seeing at CMJ and CMJ is a music industry publication charting service. And they also put on the big CMJ music marathon in New York every year. And it's historically been kind of like an industry organization for college radio. So I remember the very first time I went to New York was actually for CMJ when I was in college. I was 
a college radio music director and and it was like a rite of passage for us to for college radio music directors to go to New York City to go to this music conference where you would attend panels about radio, you would go see shows all over the city and mix and mingle with label representatives. Um, and, and college radio stations submit their weekly charts of their top, I think, 30 lists um, to CMJ every week, and that gets published in their publication and shared with people in the industry. So it's part of this whole music industry ecosystem involving musicians, involving record labels, involving radio stations. So there are the charts, there's the annual music marathon, and some other events that have happened over the years. So so back in June, I wrote that it seemed like there were some things that had been promised during the year that weren't happening. So a year ago, Paul, you and I went to a uh, CMJ event that was part of this regional event series that they were going to do for college radio stations. And we went to that in Portland. And I noticed that future regional events that they had promised weren't happening. Mm. Um, I also started noticing that there was nothing on their website. There was no call for bands to submit applications to play at the annual music marathon in New York. And the music marathon is sort of a South by Southwest kind of deal, although it's actually older, I think, than South by Southwest, right? Where uh, multiple venues around the city of New York um, do showcases, and a lot of these bands are new and emerging, right? They're not uh, necessarily all established bands. Many of them are, are fresh. Yeah, it's huge. And and I think last year's event might have been one of the biggest. Um, like tons of venues participate. It's all over New York and I think even into New Jersey. Um, so, you know, that sort of event takes a lot of planning. So, you know, I wasn't the only one who noticed that some of these things that had happened in the past, like a call for bands to submit proposals, that that wasn't appearing in the spring like it normally does. Um, so there have been kind of these whispers behind the scenes about what's going on this year. And, and this week, Stereogum published a very in-depth piece about the history of CMJ and also about speculation that this year's music marathon night might not be happening. Um, and there's no way we can go through all the details of the article, mm-hmm. but um, it relayed that there have been various management changes at CMJ over the years, various financial challenges over the years. The organization started in 1978, and its first kind of marathon music event was in 1981. So last year was the 35th anniversary wow. of those events. Um, and it's been a big deal. So they used to do a print publication, which turned into an online publication that had music reviews as well as published charts for all of the stations that report to CMJ. And that's been an important, um, an important resource for college radio stations. And many college radio stations felt like sending in their charts to CMJ that helped give exposure for your station to music labels and bands and people could consult the CMJ chart, find your contact information and send you music. And I certainly remember that back from when I was a music director, we felt like we need to have our charts in CMJ so that we'll get noticed 
by the record labels that we want to get free promotional music from. So it's, you know, for some people, CMJ is about the big marathon festival in the fall. And for others, it's also about this charting. So it seems from this article that all signs seem to point that there's not going to be a marathon this year. But after the publication of the article in Stereogum, the CEO of the company that now owns CMJ, Adam Klein, the CEO, um, said that the marathon will be happening this year. So, but we don't have we don't have details. There's about no that. details, and and I and right. I recall part of the the argument made in in that Stereo Gum article is that uh, it doesn't appear to be like any of the venues are on board, right? I mean, it, and it's it's quite the the logistical uh, uh, undertaking, right, to get all of these multiple clubs oh, all over, yeah. you know, America's biggest city. Never mind. Also, you know, as you mentioned, bands submit to play. That doesn't seem to have happened. So it seems like a lot would have to happen because the marathon normally happens when? In October? Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, in recent years, it's been in October. Yeah. So that would Um, be, you know, four to six weeks away. uh, And it's sort of it's the sort of thing I suspect is a year long kind of uh, endeavor. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's involved with a major conference, uh, you know, there are other conferences that are not on the scale of CMJ that I'm sort of involved with and calls for participation happened months ago um, and hotels were booked months months ago. So it's, you know, that's yeah, just getting that's, a hotel room for October in New York. <laughs> Hard <yeah>. enough. <laughs> so that piqued my curiosity. Um, but I, I, it's probably worth reading part of the statement from CEO Adam Klein um, he says, we are totally, we are all totally committed to protecting CMJ's unique and live heritage while adapting to the ever-changing demands of artists, fans, and the music industry by embracing supplementary engagement through digital and mobile media connectivity. Mm. Well, I'm not sure what that means. Yeah. Uh, and, but he said, a little patience and a whole lot less wild and unsubstantiated speculation is what we need right now. CMJ will continue as an innovative force and a strong presence going forward. We'll share more about our 2016 and 2017 programs soon. Huh. Yeah. So, <laughs> I could go on with some wild speculation here as well, but I won't. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's not much information. The last um, the last tweet from CMJ was back in June when on their Twitter account they also were sort of asking for patience, like please bear with us. Um, yeah, they they tweeted. We love all our dedicated fans. Please bear with us. So, and the website hasn't been updated since then either. That last I no, checked. And it, what about charts? Have there been any new charts? Have those been published or compiled? The charts are still happening. So. The charts are still happening. So that's something which uh, the average layperson doesn't necessarily have access to, and, and I certainly exactly. don't. So I wondered about that because that's a, a critical component of of the. CMJ's service to both the industry, the music industry and to stations. Yeah. So stations I've talked to have still been, they've still been reporting their charts. And, um, and then I've also seen indications that those charts have been published because bands and promoters will promote that their artist was number one on the chart this week. Well, that's, that's sort of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm personally glad to hear that. That was, I would say more so than the marathon. That was my, my chief concern because I know what a pivotal role this plays in, in college and community radio for that matter. Yeah. 
yeah, so the charts are still happening, but uh, but I have to say there's also, you know, there's also chatter. You know, people are concerned about what's going on with the whole organization. So I know that there are people who are starting to look at other chart services who are starting to question whether they should be charting with CMJ anymore. So that, I think, that should be alarm bells for CMJ. I think, you know... Yeah, there's all these questions, yeah. Yeah, stations are getting concerned, and some people, I think, are are dropping off and not renewing their subscriptions because they feel like there is some uncertainty, which, you know, clearly there is uncertainty. And just to be clear, you're dropping off subscriptions, so stations pay a subscription fee essentially to to be part of CMJ. This isn't just a, a free service. Right. So you pay a subscription fee and that also entitles you to some access to the music marathon every year. Uh-huh. I think maybe a badge, um, which is also something, you know, if you want to go see if you want to go to the CMJ music marathon, there's a fee associated with that. And I believe that reporting stations get at least one badge included with their subscription. So what this sounds like to me is that if stations are sort of inching this way, it's because they're not getting any affirmative information from CMJ directly. Uh, that's I what it sounds like to me. I think that's the problem is that people have had a hard time reaching anybody at CMJ and we haven't had public updates about this, you know, what's going on with the marathon this year. And in fact, I was really surprised to see the response from the CEO of CMJ. Um, so clearly the, the stereo gum article attracted a lot of attention. So it elicited that response from him. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been very quiet. And my understanding is that, uh, some staff have left CMJ in, in, in the, in the interim of the last year or so. Yeah. So, you know, a few of the staff that we met at the regional CMJ on tour event in Portland, I think, I think maybe all of the staff that we met at that event may have left CMJ. Hmm. Um, and, they, you know, people who are on the radio team um, who were interested in having regional conferences where radio stations could get together. Um, and David DeKaiser was the general manager of CMJ Radio, and he's left. And he tweeted a bit about his response to the Stereo Gum article and he said CMJ to me meant a community of non-coms and college stations and their staff the charts and marathons showed there was a weight to that group um, and he also pointed out so in the stereogram article there was a reference to college radio be dying or dwindling um, which some people in the college radio community have taken issue with that small, statement in that article. Um, and, and I think there are people who don't want to conflate CMJ's troubles with overall troubles in college radio. And, and David DeKaiser also kind of pointed that out saying that, you know, he, he essentially, um, still believes in college radio Mm. and, you know, things with CMJ are one thing. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I read that whole article, and it's it's a doozy, uh, and and we'll link to it in the show notes. And yeah, I think anyone who reads that article, 
if they come away thinking, oh, well, this is because college radio is dwindling or dying, um, hasn't read it because <laughs> clearly, uh, you know, there is a, a long history of financial troubles at CMJ going back all the way to the time in which, uh, you know, alternative rock was the was the hot thing in the music industry was at a high point in terms of profits. So um, this isn't something that just all of a sudden cropped up. Uh, in in the 2000s or or, or 2010s, um, you know, <laughs> but but nevertheless, uh, you know, it, it it is something which is impacting uh, college radio because of the the long uh, relationship and, and interdependence of sorts. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's the article um, certainly points out that there have been troubles at CMJ for a very long time. So you're absolutely right about that. Um. So I also talked to um, some folks who work in college radio mm-hmm. just to see what their take on, on it. Um, and I spoke with Brittany Russell, who's the music director at WZBT at Gettysburg College. Um, and she also spoke to the same point. She said, I dislike the view that college radio is dying. Um, and she said, but I would also just advise that for all further ventures, we all be incredibly wary of businesses that seem to monopolize college radio. Mm. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, she, they have, they've moved on um, and they've decided to start charting with Spinatron. And, and she said that she does have some concern that the amount of music that gets sent in may possibly drop off as a mm-hmm. result of not reporting to CMJ. But it, but it's really tough because I think um, some stations may be making the switch over during the summer when you might not be getting a lot of music in the mail to begin with when it's summertime. So yeah, I think it's going to be a while before if stations have decided to stop charting with CMJ. I don't know if we're going to know for a while what kind of impact that's going to have. Right. And Spinatron, just for people who don't know, is a uh, service that uh, stations subscribe to that it, it's it's basically a product that allows your DJs to very easily log all their plays, log their playlists, uh, and easily aggregate them. So, you know, very often in stations, it's been done using pen and paper, uh, and, and Spinatron allows a station, and this is, again, community stations as well as college stations, to very easily allow their DJs to, to do this, which then also made it easier to report to CMJ or any other service. Yeah. And I didn't realize, though, that, that, that Spinatron is being used sort of as a chart itself. I mean, I, I know that Matthew Lassar, our, our colleague uh, with Radio Survivor, often has uh, written articles when he's sort of interested in, in what bands are charting and whatever, but I didn't realize that it was sort of being used as an industry chart in the same way as CMJ now. Yeah, I mean, because since they're collecting all that data, um, sure, <laughs> it's kind of brilliant. They can easily um, do charts. Um, yeah. Um, and she... Brittany told me that with comparable costs, accurate and less subjective data and definite contact um, with the folks at Spinatron, they decided to switch. Um, and so their their last chart with CMJ was July 19th. Hmm. So, so we'll see. Um, so for College Radio as a whole, it seems as though this is a problem, but it's not deadly 
uh, it, because of the fact that it seems as though, on the one hand, uh, you have alternative services like Spinachon, and I think there are other sort of charts out there that get compiled as well. Um, yeah, right? there definitely are, and I think uh, Radioactivity is another, It's a, I think, a competitor to Spinatron, where you can use it for online playlist tracking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a few... A few other services seem to be cropping up as potential charting services, um, which has also been kind of brewing this low-key behind-the-scenes speculation about CMJ because some upstarts are starting to announce their presence, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. just like in the past few months. So there, there's definitely some stuff brewing, um, potential charting competitors brewing, um, but I don't have a lot of information about them, so I've been, uh, I haven't really been ready to talk about them on Radio Survivor because they've been a bit mysterious. Right. But there's, there's other approaches. And then the other half, of course, is the music marathon, which, you know, I mean, I think it's important in a lot of ways, but probably uh, there's plenty of stations that don't go <laughs> that can't afford, even if they have a free pass, can't afford to send somebody to New York to go. Um, and, and probably, you know, was perhaps more important to a certain segment of the music industry more so than college radio per se. Is, is, that, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I think there's some stations, some college stations would go to CMJ in New York every year. And that was a big deal. Um, you know, there was also a college radio day component to that or a college day component to the CMJ marathon. So an entire day, essentially a day long conference where it's just college radio stations in the room talking to each other, having panels. Um, and I thought that was really valuable as well. So it's definitely part of the ritual, the yearly ritual for many college stations to go to CMJ, but there are others that spend their resources elsewhere. Like, you know, there's stations that go to South by Southwest, there are stations that go to other college radio conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also want to point out there's some other new festivals starting. Um, and this is another thing that's been fueling kind of, these questions about CMJ's marathon this year is the founders of CMJ who are no longer at CMJ are doing a festival in New York in September called Mondo NYC. And that's happening at NYU, which is where the CMJ music marathon has been held um, in recent years. And that's happening September 14th to 18th. And so when those plans were announced, some people were wondering, is this a replacement for the CMJ music marathon it's it's different it's not exactly the same but so so we've got some like competing charting services who are starting up we've got some competing festivals that are starting up uh so i think you know there are opportunists out there too who are noticing that this might be a time to start something new Right. I mean, and especially in the music festival side, um, I know that now college stations also go to places outside of New York, like the Tree Fort Festival, which happens in Boise, Idaho. There's the Hopscotch Music Festival in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, all with this similar kind of new and emerging bands focus, you know, in the same kind of multi-venue approach. And in some cases probably are, you know, less expensive to get to and to, to, to find hotel rooms and such than it is to go to New York or in this case, or often now 
with South by Southwest, which in Austin, which can be awfully expensive. Yeah, it's a very different world now, and it seems as though, you know, uh, the way I kind of look at it is CMJ. I mean, has this great legacy, um, and has done great services. is is so part and parcel, I think, in helping make college radio a, a influential force for American culture going back right to 1981. But that legacy, you know, um, may not be held onto so strongly. Um, and college radio is lucky that the world has changed in that interim <laughs> to some extent that there's now they have the ability to communicate better themselves, right? Uh, if you were a station in 1984, where were you going to publish a chart? Uh, where now right. you can publish a chart yourself, of course, to your website, and 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 music industry people will see it and and will and you know uh, will have the opportunity to read it, and then you have services like Spinatron, and you have other other blogs and such, which may also cover uh, what college radio plays. Um, it's it's a much more diverse world, and, and it may be that that although it was great to see CMJ stepping up last year to provide additional really much needed and, and very helpful service to college radio. Um, and, and it was probably a great way for it to to continue to keep itself relevant. Um, uh, it's maybe facing a lot of the sort of struggles that all sorts of, of legacy and old media institutions face uh, in this day and age. Yeah, it's really a challenge. And if they were already struggling financially, you know, it just, I'm sure it just snowballs. So and the cost of putting on a big festival, I can only imagine. So it's, it's, it's tough. And you're right, it is a totally different world. I think back to when I was in college in the 80s, and you know, you would fax or call in your, your charts to CMJ, and they would get published in a print publication. Mm -hmm. And then flash, flash forward to the 90s, and I was emailing a college station's charts out to record labels, as well as to CMJ. Mm -hmm. And then today, yeah, you can post it on your own website. It's just so different now with all the technology that we have, and things yeah. can be de things can be decentralized. Uh, conferences can take place all over the country. So, you know, I I have a fondness for CMJ, mm -hmm. and and I hope that they pull through. Um, but you know, at right now, it's sort of a waiting game to see uh, what they're announcement is about the festival and about the future of the company i think right well we'd love to hear from uh folks in college and community radio because i i do want to point out that uh, cmj is not just college radio um that many community stations report to cmj and cmj has a diversity of charts it's not just indie rock but i they also have uh, things like reggae, uh, sort of Americana music, blues music are all charts that they've compiled over the years as well. Uh, so they do a service really to a broad segment of the music industry that is mostly not really seen or heard from in, say, Billboard or in most of the uh, mainstream publications. But um, we'd love to hear from you if you're at a station uh, of any sort and you have a relationship with CMJ or you have thoughts about this situation and what it means for a non-commercial radio and, and independent music. Let us know. Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com or, or tweet us at Radio Survivor. Drop us a note on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. Love to get your reaction to what's going on here with, uh, with this longstanding institution in uh, non-commercial radio. So, Jennifer, thank you so much. And I know you'll be doggedly following this story um, as it develops, both, uh, I hope, reporting here at Radio Survivor, the podcast, as well as at radiosurvivor.com, right? 
Of course, yes, I will. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> and of course, your coverage of College Radio publishes every Friday at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, thanks again, Jennifer, for, for keeping us up to date with, especially as we hit a, a brand new academic year here in College Radio. I know, it's an exhausting week. It's crazy. <laughs> Well, rest up. I'm sure um, there'll be there'll be plenty of news to report on next week. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, Paul Reismandel. Thank you, Jennifer Waits. Thank you, Matthew Lassar. My name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good week. <laughs>